Hello and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman and Stephen Craig. This is episode 245. So before we get started today, we are seven years at Macrofab. Oh, that yeah, seven years since the beginning? Yeah, seven years was... I, I came on board October 1st was my first day. And so te- I call that as like the start of Macrofab. Church, Chris Church, the other founder, says it's The like genesis the, is when Parker shows up. No, no. The, the official, I would say the official is like when the paperwork went in. Yeah. Which was like sometime in the middle of September. But we didn't actually really do anything until October 1st, which is when Church and I like got together around the table and like tried to figure stuff out. Yeah. Nice. How's, so, it, how's it feel? Seven years. Um, Feels like been doing this for a long time yeah yeah i mean i was there for two and a half of those seven years and that felt like a long time yeah it feels like a long it's almost like yeah i know i did stuff before that but like at this point that stuff doesn't even matter or i remember a lot of it anymore it's like when you when you get out of college you remember college a lot but like maybe you remember still a little bit of high school but you don't remember much of middle school as you get at least for me as i get older like my rolling memory is like maybe 10 years <laughs> <laughs> and it's averaged really yeah. hard. Yes. And so like, yeah, before that was, um, dynamic perception and working in Oklahoma and oil and gas and then college. Yeah. But like, I might remember like the last couple of years of college, like my freshman year, I don't remember too much besides like not liking it because I was in petroleum engineering at the time. Um, you know, I, it's funny. I was thinking about I was thinking about myself in college just just the other day, and uh, like if I could go back in time and tell myself, you know, oh, you know, in ten years this is what you'll be doing, and I, I think myself in college would be like, oh, that's cool, you know, that's that's really cool. But I also think about myself going back to talk to myself in college, I'd be like, man, you were way smarter in college than you are now. Like <laughs> I couldn't do half the crap I did back in college. Like like some of that, some of the advanced math that I was doing back then. Like that, I was just, you had to do it. Like, I couldn't oh, do no, any of that now. No, no. I was actually talking to my dad about that. And because he's a chemical engineer, and I'm like, if you put a, a, uh, derivative in front of me and told me to, to you know, to, uh, I can't remember. <laughs> derive it? <laughs> well, not derive it, but what's the inverse? I can't remember what that was called. Integrate? Yeah, integrate. That's right. That, uh, that function, I'd be like, uh, 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 <laughs> uh. Whereas, like, you know, 20, 20 year old Parker would be like, done. Right, right. Well, which is funny because you could do that, but I bet you some of the, uh, some of the stuff that you're asked to, like I guarantee you the stuff that I'm asked to do right now, I would have just been like, oh. I'm, yeah, exactly. Like, it just, I have no it's, clue. It's, it's what you, 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 you're good at what you always do, like repetitive things. Sure. Um, so back then, math, you know, you went to a math class like, you know, four times a week. And, you were doing that every single day, but then you get out of college, and if the, if you're not doing like heavy research, design work, or doing academic work, you're not running calculus by hand. No. Um, now understanding what those things are, like derivatives and integrations, I think it's more important learning knowing what those are, what that means. Yeah, what it means for sure. You can always look up how to accomplish something. Or, yeah, because uh, our phones do that for us now. 
But yeah, understanding like how those play into formulas and and like rates of change and that kind of stuff in, in systems. That's more important than actually deriving it by hand. So, so let me let me let me ask you this: <laughs> Have you, in your professional career, used something that you would say is direct calculus, not just like understanding it, but like write out something that you did in calculus and it applies directly to your job? Not at Macrofab. Actually, not a not not a job at all. Hundred percent, never a job. <laughs> um, I have done projects on my own that yes, like implementing uh, complex functions in in uh, in in Verilog and stuff like that. Yeah, sure, sure, yeah. Or figuring out like you know rates of change, doing an integration or best fit kind of stuff. But yeah, not for. I mean, it's manufacturing, man. <laughs> Well, right. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, so much of it is like derived from that. So like everything you do has calculus behind it. Right. But like, yes, you're not having to do the fundamental portion of it. Correct. Yeah. So Sorry. Sorry if that makes anyone depressed who's in calculus right now being like, I need to know this for the rest of my life. <laughs> well, I, I view it like cursive. I think it's, it's it's more important than cursive, in my opinion. You, yeah, no, you're right, but it's similar. It's very similar. Yeah. Um, well, and, and yeah, yeah, it's very similar in terms of, uh, yeah, you put it in front of someone and someone can't read it, right? Yes. Hundred <laughs> percent on that. Um, so yeah, seven years, and another interesting fact about that was also. 245 weeks in a row with the MacFab Engineering Podcast. You know, I was just thinking about that. So I, I came on board in 2015. Um, I don't remember when it was in 2015, but that means we've been doing this for almost five years now? Getting close there, yeah. Oh, my God. That's crazy. Yeah. that That's that's the crazy thing. Like, if you would have asked me, I would have said, like, we'd probably be doing this a year and a half. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, according... According to algebra, not calculus, that's four and a half years. Yeah, approaching five. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. And I think there's only been one episode you were not on. Uh, two. Or is it two? Was, or were they back-to-back because you were moving? One was it. I was in Tijuana uh, that's for right. manufacturing, and then the other one I think I was driving up to. Colorado. Yeah, you were actually like in a car somewhere, like in the middle of nowhere, Texas. Right. Yeah. So... Yeah, so you you need to miss two of them now, so we can <laughs> balance the force. Yeah, balance the force out. Okay, Stephen. So you you got something really really awkward here, right? Oh, my topic. Yeah, your topic. Or unless you want to go into my topics and leave. I think we should go to your later. topic first, not to scare off the uh, viewers. Yeah, yeah. If this is your first episode. Yeah, this is your first episode. We'll do Stephen's first, and then we'll do mine because. Uh, I don't know. Mine's really good. I think it's a really good topic. It's just, no, it's uh, a great topic. It's just weird. Just weird. Okay. Yeah. So, so it's something yeah, I've yeah. never thought about. But yeah. Okay. Go. Yeah. Okay. So well. Okay. I've got I've got two topics, and and this, both of them are Fusion three hundred and sixty related. But the first one is is very much directly talking about Fusion three hundred and sixty. So <clears throat> on October first, actually they announced this a while back, but on October first, um, Fusion three hundred and sixty changed their personal license subscription model. And uh, it they they made some pretty hefty changes that kind of uh, upset uh, a bit of the community, uh, a bit of the so, hacker community. Fusion three hundred and sixty is a 
so so fusion 360 is just kind of a combination of of like your autocads and your solidworks and all your simulation tools and uh and even cam generation for cnc stuff so it's kind of like the all-in-one package uh and and for a while they had a uh, a personal license that you could get or <clears throat> they had a license that was basically if you were a small business but you had not made yet a uh, hundred thousand dollars then you could um you could utilize their software for free well they changed a lot of elements about it that make it it's it's fine the things that they changed but it makes it very much like feel way more like trial as opposed to like what what you're actually getting so a lot of the things are things uh things like you can only have 10 active editable documents which 10 is is fine if uh if you're doing like simple one-off things but um it's very easy to go past 10 let's just put yeah, it that way I, I did look into this um because i use fusion 360 a lot as well yeah. is on this one is you can go over that 10 limit it just archives them yep but then all you have to do is go into it and unarchive and then so it's not like it limits you to a hard 10 it just older stuff gets archived and then you have to just go back and unarchive it when you need to work on it it just it makes assemblies with more than 10 things difficult yes that's the main limitation is that it makes you it makes you spend more time if you wanted to like kind of defeat that you couldn't have 10 individual things you'd have to design them all within one and con consider them one and i don't like that i the, the way i run all of my things is Every, and every individual thing has its own drawing, and then they come together into an assembly the quote proper way. Mm -hmm. uh, and it just and and I say proper because like Fusion 360 kind of it, it pushes you towards doing things that way. Uh, so yeah, ten active editable documents. It's easy to go over that, but uh, if you're just trying to use this for like I don't know cam generation for your CNC or your 3D printer at home, then that's probably fine, right? Uh, one thing that kind of sucks is they, they limited exports. Uh, so they still have STL uh, files, but they got rid of DXF, DWG, and PWF. And that kind of cripples it, if you ask me. Uh, especially if, well, you could still use it for a, a lot of your 3D generation and, and design work and things, but getting rid of D, uh, DXF and PDF just kills your opportunity of making drawings and sending them out for uh, manufacturing. And yeah, getting like quotes. Uh, so they, they, they also cut back on cam support. So if you were using this to control some of your larger CNCs with more functions, uh, you no longer get that capability, but it still works for your 2.5 axis, uh, guys. So I don't know, like if you were using a free copy of, of Fusion 360 con to control your five axis CNC, like your, your CNC machine that costs more than what the limit of the license was previously exactly like if you have a big cnc that's more than this like there's a chance you already have other software that you're using um so i don't know that doesn't seem like a huge issue uh one of the things though that was funny is they actually limited the exports of step files or they eliminated it and there was a huge pushback from the hacker community on that and um they eventually uh well they they said that they fixed that by uh, by allowing you to um, continue to do step exports, which step files are kind of the generic 3D file that most uh, 3D rendering uh, software can use. <clears throat> so it's sort of like the one language that they all speak. And getting rid of that really sucks because then you can't talk between any of your other 3D 
uh, program. So uh, in a quote from them, they, uh, they claim the reversal was due to unintended consequences from the hobbyist community. So in other words, like a bunch of people bitched about it. <laughs> we got some angry tweets. Yeah. Well, and, and the thing was like, at first when I saw this, I was like, oh man, that kind of blows. Like, because I want to, I use Fusion every day at work and um, I pretty much use it almost every day at home for, for a lot of my projects because I do a ton of drawings in there. And, and I realized that I've been using Fusion at home at least for free for like a year and a half. And I really liked the program and I was like, you know what, I should support this anyway. And on top of that, they were offering 40% off of the subscription service. So I ended up picking picking up the subscription up. Uh, and it makes a lot of sense. I, I kind of got into Fusion at just the right time because I got a year and a half to learn it for free. And so when I bought my subscription, I'm like, I bought it and I can do everything. Everything with it. Right with it. So like, I didn't have to spend a few hundred dollars and then uh, learn it. So it does, it does kind of suck, but eventually these things happen, you know, like yeah. you're not gonna get, free stuff all the time. You can't get a free lunch every day. Right, right. So uh, Um, that's the biggest thing I, when I was reading about people complaining about this online, uh, especially Twitter, um, is, yeah, it sucks that the people who are makers or or, uh, hobbyists, but the thing is, it's still very capable of a piece of program. Absolutely. Um, Really, the only thing that really hurts makers is that 10 active project thing yeah and in reality if you're doing something way more complicated you should probably own a subscription right right i i really wish there was a i i wish it wasn't subscription i'm not huge on subscription models i i don't i don't relish the idea that this time next year i'm gonna have to do this again yeah you got well it's it's basically you never own it uh-huh right yeah. i never right exactly i never own it and uh and now, what if it was? So this is this is goes back to the old um, Adobe Adobe Suite, like Photoshop and stuff. And this was a big deal um, with graphic design shops and stuff like that. Is you, you would buy a the Adobe license for like all your computers, and you and you would um, so you would buy like let's say Adobe Eight, Adobe Suite Eight, but you would skip nine and then buy 10 because you couldn't afford buying all of them mm-hmm. well adobe saw that and was like okay how do we get people to continually you know pay us now and so the subscription models what because i think adobe was kind of like the first um company that tried to do this with like tools tool software um and i think autodesk is 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 getting there um because Eagle, when Eagle got bought off by Autodesk, they moved to a subscription model. Oh, yeah, that's right. Since you have Fusion 360, you now have a license of Eagle. <laughs> yep, yep, I have Eagle now. <sighs> but, um, yeah, I, I'm kind of torn on it. Because I, I did the same thing with Eagle, is I would only, I would skip versions. Mm-hmm. Just so that, because I couldn't afford the full license every single year. And so I would skip a year and then buy it next year. But, but now the great thing with the license the subscription model is I can afford it and I get all the new goodies all the time. It's not like, yeah. oh, I have Eagle 6. I, can, I can't I can get 7 and get all its, you know, 
all the fancy bells and whistles yet. So that's actually my question to you would be, it's kind of a big roundabout way of putting this question out, is if you could just buy Fusion 360, but it was locked into the current feature set that you could get right now, would you do it? It would depend on the price, but um, yes, I probably would because I there's so much about Fusion that I don't need, and it does everything I do right now. And, and everything that they add ends up being quality of life improvements and not feature releases where it's like, oh, great, it finally does this thing. It does chambers now. Right, right. right? Like, <laughs> my, no, it's done the that. stuff that I need it to do, it's already far past my requirements capabilities right yeah. so so you know if if i could pay say twice as much as i did and own so it, basically two years of subscription but then you basically get it forever i would probably do that um but that just couldn't work <laughs> you know like that's not how fusion works especially because a lot of your i mean your files are stored in the cloud and all that uh jazz so like I, I, it's nice to have the updates and everything, and they change things to mainly make things better. Uh, I've seen some things go away that I was like, oh, I like that before, but but most of the time they don't actually get rid of things; they just move them around and put them in like sub menus and things. You know, uh, one thing I, I have to kind of praise them about that I think that they do a surprisingly good job. Somehow they've set up their software that they don't. Let me choose my words carefully here. They don't have an obvious support team. In other words, like you can't go to their website and like call someone up and be like, I need help. Somehow they've set it up where their own community, like there's just forums out there and people will just help each other. And and what I mean by that, them being brilliant in that is like, they don't have to have a support team that, you know, a lot of these other companies do. I'm sure the support team at SolidWorks or Solid Edge is probably huge. Uh, in fact, one of the one of the engineers that that worked at Macrofab, well, he was getting his engineering degree at the time. He he went on to work at a company like that, and they hired a full time engineer just to help people with their software. Do support. Yeah, and 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 it seems like in Fusion, the community just helps the communities. And in fact, it's funny if you go to the Fusion's website. They'll be like, oh, do you have a question? Go to the forum and just post the question. You know, it's like, how is that support? But it works, you know? I wonder if they have a, because of those different tiers of the subscription model. Yeah. I wonder if one of the higher tiers is like enterprise support where like you can just call and someone will be on the line. Maybe. Because, uh, so I ran into a, an interesting issue that I, I searched around and no one else is running into this issue. Um, basically, something a lot of the programs I do are flat sheet metal where I do engraving and cutting on them. And uh, you can do a thing called a pattern where you basically select one thing and you make an array out of it. So it's like, give me 15 wide by four high and then tell my CNC to step and repeat all of these things. And that's what I do at work for production. Well, there's a built-in maximum file size that um, Fusion seems to crap out on. So when you go to generate your, your G code, if it's above a certain physical size on your disk, it'll just fail. Well, what that means is I have to cut back my production if my production is uh, exceeds that limit. And it also seems to change because like programs that I ran in the past and I regenerate now fail 
because they're too large now. And that that size is 250 megabytes. And some of my programs are 350 megabytes and I have to break them up into you know, a left Chunks. side and a right side and I have to tend to my machine more often. And I was just wanting to call them up and be like, is this a certain, is there just a value somewhere I can say like, make limit 500 megabytes or something? And I doubt that there is a limit, but I, I can't find out. I've, I've had... I've had my CNC manufacturer look at it because at first it looked like it was there, an issue with their machine. And they looked into it and they're like, oh, no, this is a, a physical limit from Fusion because I'm generating the thing from Fusion and Fusion fails at a certain point. And so, like, I don't want to post that on a forum because who on earth is going to know the answer to that? You know. That's... So I was checking. Apparently, if you have a paid subscription, mm-hmm. you can get uh, – you can – you can get a Autodesk support specialist. Okay. So I have a paid subscription myself personally and one at work. And when I was just browsing around to get that answered, it it wasn't super apparent. No, I actually went, I went to the subscribe page and went like subscription benefits and clicked on that and was reading. I'm like, okay, they actually offer paid support if or uh, support that comes with your subscription. Sure. So I I I just need to dig a little bit further. It's just not like very apparent. Yeah, it's not like a button that says get help. Right, right, right. It's, or it's like not a, like a technical phone number, you know? Yeah. It's like a uh, Amazon. The moment you have to talk with a human at Amazon, it's like impossible to find where you need to go cuz they always move that button around. <laughs> They got to pay their developers to do, and they something. and they changed. In, well, yeah, but yeah, but they changed the name of it too. So, like, because usually if you can't find it, you go Control F Contact. Where is Contact on this page? But they changed that. It's not called Contact anymore. It's called about something else. Yeah. So you can't do that anymore. You maybe maybe I'll download Eagle and just look at it. Yeah, I don't care. Maybe. I just think it's. I, I think it's funny that now you own a copy of it, even though you don't want it. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm super jelly uh, that that Eagle integrates like seamlessly with Fusion. I wish I had that capability. The speaking of your EDA tool that you like, DipTrace. Do you know that DipTrace outports or exports ODB plus plus now? Oh, they've done that for years now. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. And so I just I actually just updated documentation for Mac and I actually tested it. I downloaded DipTrace so I could test their output uh, exports, mm-hmm. and it works great with with our Macrofab platform. Yeah, yeah, they they, they implemented that uh, I think not long after we moved shops at Macrofab, and I was like, ah, finally, uh, you know, DipTrace does this, and everyone's like, no one cares about DipTrace, and so I didn't push on it <laughs> well, I, I just had a i had a customer that was using DipTrace, and yeah. uh they gave us the ascii file which is our old way of importing it right. so they gave us the ascii and the gerbers and the ascii formats of course changed so our parser doesn't work anymore right and uh and so i'm like i wonder if DipTrace exports odb plus plus yet and i looked and yeah it's in their and their supported exports so i downloaded it test, i actually imported the guy's ascii file yep and then exported the ODB++ and then dropped that into the platform and it did everything perfectly. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> Finally. Finally. And then I updated all documentation. Good to go. One um, of the things that was always super, super, super annoying about the way DipTrace and Macrofab work together, and this isn't a Macrofab problem. This is more just like it would take so much development time to fix this. 
but um, Diptrace ASCII's spit out vias as an element, mm -hmm. and they show up on the bomb. So you'd have a yeah. bomb item that just said static via. <laughs> yeah, static via. Uh, KeyCat did that for a long time as well. Oh, really? Like, if you look at before, um, back when we used to have a KeyCat parser that we would, we had, this is before, like, KeyCat had any kind of, like, scripting capabilities. Um, so this is, this is like, five, six years ago now. Um, yeah, KeyCat would have the same thing, because the vias were, like, elements mm -hmm. that were on the bomb, in the bomb section uh, of the of the file. Really weird. Um, but then we wait, we switched over to basically we you know running KeyCat on a server. And uh that Oh works right, a lot there's better. always a copy going in the yeah. back. Yeah. The secrets. So, yes. Now if only Eagle could could output ODB plus plus. Oh, I thought that it did. No, it doesn't. At least mm -hmm. last I checked. Yeah, but um, you guys have all your fancy commands that run yeah, that's the great thing is Eagle also runs really well. It's like um, KeyCat. It, it can run on the server really well. So yeah. we just run that. Um, how how long has you, that copy of Eagle been running? Oh, I don't know. Actually, I think it spins it up like when you... It's not like on. A, it's not like idle. Oh, I thought I thought it was just sitting there waiting. No, no, it's hands. not idle. It's. I think it spins up when someone... Puts basically puts a queue in for processing whatever. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, at least might from be, what might I be faster if it was idle. I don't think so. It's pretty quick already. No one complains. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, my weird topic. Security flaw left smart chastity sex toy users at risk of permanent lock-in. That, that's the actual title to the article, right? That's the title of the article. Um, so I didn't know this was a thing, but it's called Cellmates, which is uh, a pretty good name for this. But yeah, it's a chastity Bluetooth IoT chastity belt thing. Um, so it works by allowing a trusted partner to remotely lock and unlock the chamber over Bluetooth using a mobile app. Uh, so the app could, uh, communicates with the lock using an API, but the API was left open without a password. Um, and basically it allows anyone to take control of the user's device. Yeah. This is like if you're like, you know, if you're driving down the road and you're like, so if you're ever in traffic, start scanning on the Bluetooth and seeing if you can connect to people's radios. Oh, yeah. That's I like a that. pastime of mine on, sitting <laughs> in traffic. Um so that's basically what this is, right? It's basically if you're if the other app isn't connected to it right away, um, anyone could could log into your chastity belt. <laughs> like, I mean, somebody's got to had to have thought of this uh, in terms of being like I don't know a security issue. Maybe some people are into that. I, I I've said this so many times to my wife, like. <laughs> I, and I mean this in both a positive and potentially a negative way. Like, for any of these projects that are out there, or or products or anything, there's a Parker or a Steven that's behind it that was the guy or guys or, per, or you know group of people that were in charge of it. And so like that's both a good and maybe not also a good thing. Like somebody has to think of all these things. And what happens when somebody doesn't think of all of the faults in there? 
mm-hmm. and then you put on a chastity belt and you run into some serious problems, right? Yeah. I mean, we were talking about this uh, a little while ago, something similar with, um, re- remember there was that product that was a, it was a garage door opener and then the servers just went down. Yeah. The server or it got, yeah, the server just went away, right? Yeah. Cause the company went out of business. Yeah. No, you can't and open it, your garage door. Yeah. No one could open their garage doors. I can't, that was, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a couple of years ago. Yeah. So now this is a garage door for your wing wang. <laughs> Basically, right? Like, I mean, how do you how do you protect against this? You know, uh, use a chastity belt that just has a regular lock on it. <laughs> yeah, actually, well, like, I don't know. I don't want to get into the why you would need this kind of thing. Uh, that's so. Also, the, this it gets worse though. Is apparently these cellmate chastity locks also have GPS, and so, so you know where you're. Oh, oh man, where's where's that quote? Wait, why? Ah, track log to monitor time and location of unlocking. Submissive will not be able to cheat and escape. Ah, okay. Because by the way, this is a Chinese cellmate thing, so like that's a translated. Uh, I, I would have never guessed. Ad. Uh, okay. <laughs> Frankly, this looks like one of those random things that show up on your social media feed from like Wish. Uh, you ever you ever see that where like just random weird crap shows up? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I don't know. This is. Uh... But yeah. So, and this is not like just a piece of plastic where like you could just like take it apart or whatever. No, it's like it has like a metal ring and stuff. So you'd have to use like a heavy duty bolt cutter or an angle grinder to free the user <laughs> from this device. <laughs> oh god, but, shooting sparks but, all over the place. Yeah. But the, the the writer of the article, Zach Whitaker, I think that's how you pronounce his Whitaker. last name, uh, says it the best. Pras- practice safe sex. Don't use a smart device. <laughs> yeah, seems very reasonable. Um, see, okay, the the part about it is like. Gosh, I don't want to get into the weird stuff here, but it's called a sex toy. So you would think it would be for like play, whereas like the GPS thing would be more like, I don't know, like if you had a partner that was cheating on you and you were trying to make sure they wouldn't cheat on you kind of thing. So you could like check where they are. But I mean, that's kind of extreme, right? Don't you think? I would think so. Yeah, it seems highly extreme. (laughs) I'm not, I'm not. We here on the Mac Five Engineering Podcast are not going to kink shame anyone. Oh yeah, well no, I mean I'm just that I was just going off the fact that it's it's labeled as a sex toy, not as like a, I don't know. It's weird. <laughs> Label as a what? Actually, so the <laughs> anti cheating uh, device. I yeah, guess. no, I mean uh, yeah, anti cheating device versus sex toy, right? Here's a review. The app stopped working completely after three days, and I am stuck. <laughs> Help, please. <laughs> uh, you know, um, my the, the smart TV that I I bought when we were in um, uh, when my wife and I were living in an apartment in Houston, it it just flat out doesn't have protection on it, uh, and and. Well, I, I shouldn't say that. It 
it came with the protections unlocked in terms of uh, screencasting. So, you know, you can take your phone and you can cast to the screen whatever's on your phone or your tablet. Or oh, whatever. like Chromecast. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, it, it, it has the capability to do that uh, screen sharing or whatever they call it. And, uh, and by default, it was set to always allow as opposed to ask. And there was multiple times that somebody in our apartment complex were able to scan and they put, they put some naughty stuff up on the screen. <laughs> I saw, I heard my wife screaming from the other room. Like what's wrong? She's like, I didn't put this on the screen. I don't know what's up. It was just some kid trolling her obviously. But uh, yeah, so I was surprised because I had to go in and set it to like, Oh, well ask me before just putting any thing on the screen. Right. Or some kid just got really lucky that it wasn't the screen that their parents were watching. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it was an accident, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Should oh man, this on? is this is rough. Yeah, this is weird. Yeah. This okay, is let's move on. Move on. Topic here. Uh, okay, so let let let's go talk about nerdy stuff uh, a little bit more. Uh, I wanted to talk about uh, some sheet metal fabrication. Uh, things because I've been doing a little bit of that recently, and uh, I've run into some um, I've run into some things specifically with Fusion 360, but just general things that I wanted to kind of touch on. So, Fusion 360 has like a whole sheet metal tool uh, or like module in it, which w- I've used it in the past, but I haven't had a need to until recently. And then I got back into it, and I was like, man, this thing is really cool because it makes sheet metal bending and making chassis and enclosures and whatever. It makes it super easy. But I realized that, um, I realized that there's some, there's some gotchas in there that, uh, make things a little bit difficult. So, so first of all, whenever you use the tool, there's a lot of things that are already predefined for you inside that tool that, uh, if you're not, if you're not careful that you can, you can step on a landmine. So, when you when you draw something up, you have to tell it what the material is, and it gives you options, and they're just like default template options, and they're things like steel, aluminum, blah blah blah, and unless you go in and you edit those actual features, then you don't have control over a lot of things like the bend radius and allowances, and uh, if you're doing like unique bends that require cutouts and things like that, uh, Fusion will automatically do those for you. And that's something that's fun and it's cool and it lets you see shapes on the screen really easily. But those things that you're you're doing on there may not actually be real. They may not be manufacturable. They may not be something that you could tell somebody to go do. So I wanted to just basically say like, hey, watch out for those landmines. Uh, like, for instance, I was doing something with 20 gauge steel that has different rules than the steel that was as the template for they only have one thing called steel infusion and i think the whole purpose is like hey we're just giving you a template to show you how to do this uh and i i think that's something you can kind of get in trouble with real quick if you just look at it and say oh this is steel especially like a guy like me where i'm i'm not a mechanical engineer i don't know these things but i know enough to not just rely on a template that's there that i didn't create so what, what did you have to change well, there's so there's a handful of things in there. Um, well, first of all, like they they don't tell you like a gauge; they just say steel, 
and you have to go in there and make sure that you're you have the thickness set to whatever the gauge is uh, that you're going with. But also, like there's there's a thing called K factor, which I'm not going to go much into because I bring back. Uh, I don't know. I'm just going to say I don't know uh, because I'm a uh, electrical guy. But I just I do know that steel has a K factor, and it has has to do with how steel gets bent or sheet metal gets bent and. Um, the, each material has its own K factor, and re, really, they have a range. Ah, this this article speaks my language. The K factor is like the roux of a gumbo. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that mm. sounds really technical, right? Well, I clicked on it because it said that. Yeah, uh, fabricator.com. So, so these things are all like they put default values into all of these fields, and and a lot of these things are I shouldn't say rule of thumbs, but they're like. Your minimum bend radius is like your thickness times two, uh, and a lot of a lot of things like that. What what I think is important, and I've kind of been saying this a lot recently on the podcast, but it just keeps remaining true. Contact your manufacturer or contact your local sheet metal uh, provider fabricator, and ask them what their machines can do. See if they make a good gumbo. <laughs> Yeah, do you know the K factor? Like, I, honestly, if you called them up and asked them if they know the K factor, like, uh, I doubt they'd even be able to tell you that. But th- but they could probably tell you, hey, for twenty gauge steel, we have this kind of these kinds of machines, and these are the things that you should do. Or better yet, don't try to micromanage every little thing. And and I think so. Fusion. And, and design software in general, I feel like there's two paths or there's two users that, that exist in my mind for these kinds of things. You got the user who wants the thing to be made and somebody else has to make it. And then you have the other user who's being told to make it and they're the ones who press the buttons on the machine. Two different users there. The guy who wants someone else to make it isn't the person who needs to uh, assign all of the little intricacies like somebody who's running the pick and place machine at macrofab or the selective solder machine they know the specifics of that machine but the person who just wants their stuff through hole soldered doesn't need to know the specifics of those machines right or they should know general specifics of selective solder machines i think that's super true when it comes to sheet metal design too like you could use Fusion 360 to make your whole enclosure and then press the button where it unfolds everything and it shows all all the bends and things like that. But I guarantee you send that to 10 places and they're all going to be like, well, this is great and all, but these bends don't align with how our machines do this. We have these specific rules and you didn't follow those, so you got to go back and redesign it. So if you fit in the category of the guy who is like, I want someone else to make this enclosure for me, design the enclosure the way you want the enclosure to be in terms of pre-folded and the all the sizes correct and then send that to your guys and say you figure out how it unfolds given your machine's requirements uh, i think that's frankly the best way so in other words you can use the sheet metal tool in things like fusion because it makes folding al- aluminum or, or materials and enclosures super easy but don't try to micromanage all the little nitpicky little things because there's a good chance you're wrong you know and it just would create more back and forth between you and the manufacturer delays and possibly like a redesign right right 
Yeah, like take for take for example, like if say you had a box that you wanted it to be six inches by six inches by one inch, something like that, and you wanted it to be folded aluminum, provide a drawing that shows that the outer uh, dimensions are six by six by one, and they figure out how how it gets bent such that that is true. Uh, now you could establish a relationship and then work out all the details, and maybe they would provide you all of their bend allowances and all the all the K factors and crap, and then you could, you know, micromanage it. But at the same time, that could change tomorrow, right? And you don't know that. But a drawing that just says six by six by one doesn't change tomorrow. So uh, it, it, you have to get to know the person for them to share their, their gumbo recipe. Right, the secret sauce, right? What's, what's your oil to flour ratio? Like you, those are things that, you know, people hold close to their heart. What what is the right gumbo to uh, flour to oil ratio? For me? Yeah, I don't know. I just kind of mix it <laughs> until it looks right. Yeah, I it, it, <laughs> that that works too. You know, um, funny enough, I've I went on like a gumbo excursion for the past like year and a half, where I've been making gumbo and trying to perfect my recipe, and uh, it, it bothers the living snot out of me when people do everything off of volumetric um, measurements. Weight. As opposed to weight, yeah, like, or the or somebody will use a measuring cup to measure both their liquids and their solids, and then it's just like, oh, like, I don't know. That's <laughs> part of being an engineer, I guess. Like, oh, some yeah. sometimes you can get away with that, but other t- like you can't be consistent. Well, flour just settles. Huh? Any powder you can't measure by volume. Oh right, yeah, yeah. And and then but 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 you you get that's why when you open like up one cup of flour packed well everyone's gonna pack a cup differently but yeah. if you say five hundred grams of flour like you know it, the only way you mess that up is if you don't read the numbers right <laughs> or you're on the moon well uh, yeah or or you're hundred miles <laughs> up <laughs> right <laughs> uh, I guess there's like a default understanding that. You're on the surface. This is based of off of sea level measurements, right? Sure. Gravity isn't 9.81 uh, meter seconds. Right, right. If you're, I it, like, I, I can't Square. remember. It's, it's like, it's a really, really reasonable approximation for every place that humans live, right? Yes. I, especially when cooking gumbo is involved, because yeah. gumbo is like <laughs> a pot Gumbo's of dirt, involved. right? Yeah. <laughs> like. Yeah. The, um, it's sort of hard to get wrong. Now, what's going to happen in 100 years is people are going to listen to this podcast and think of how um, of how, uh, how silly we are of weighing food because they're living on Mars and on the moon now. I, I mean, eventually, I, <laughs> eventually human beings will just be able to feel the right amount, just like understand, like we'll evolve to the point where like we don't have to measure anything. We just know it's right. We'll all transcend into energy. <laughs> yeah, actually, I had a conversation with someone a, a while ago about we, we have language has a way of describing numbers, right? And and we have a way that we can I could say any number that exists, and you would know what that number is because we've come up with a way of describing it, and it and it boils down to uh, a handful of of noises that we make, right? But what if we evolve to the point one day where every number has its own unique sound, where like I could just say a number, and it's I mean, one sound, and 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 it, and it can only represent that number. 
Oh, so like instead of multiple sounds making up, so like a thousand, one zero 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 is technically two sounds. Is no, you're talking no, about? no, like the number 1000 would have its own sound and no other number would sound like it. And the number 1001 would have a different sound than 1000. Eventually we, we can evolve to that point, right? I think we don't want to go that way. That sounds overly complicated to have to learn all those sounds. Maybe we just evolve to the point where you don't have to learn it. You just know it. That's like the Matrix. <laughs> I know Kung Fu. Whoa. With that, I think we should end this podcast. <laughs> yeah, this is going way off the rails. So that was the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dolman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Whoa. Give me your, give me your gumbo recipes. <laughs>